Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists and continue in our journey in respect to the convergence of technology and wetland science. I'm your host, Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we'll hear further from our panelists from episode 15, from Drew Haley with Mitigation Resources of North America, Victoria Colangelo with the Mitigation Banking Group, Susan Marie Stedman with NOAA, Nicole Church with Snyder and Associates, Tara Alden with Kimley Horn, Michael Sprague with Trout Headwaters, and Kay Hovater with the Florida Association of Mitigation Bankers, as they answer questions about wetland mitigation banking and tech. Let's get right into the questions. I'd like to direct the first question to, uh, to Victoria, then Drew, Mike, and Nicole. And that is, how have these recent changes to WOTUS impacted your, your current operations and sites? So um, I'm in Florida, and the state still regulates isolated wetlands. So uh, we're fortunate for that. However, um, there are less projects that will be meeting federal credits. There hasn't been too many projects, maybe a handful that I've worked on. I'm, I'm currently working at about 100 projects throughout the state. I would say there was 10, um, about 10% or so, that now don't need the federal mitigation. They may have already purchased them. So that's good and bad. It's good because now the regulatory agency timeline will be minimized. And now I can, you know, reserve those credits, get them purchased and transferred quicker. So I like that. But at the same time, those federal credits are not being regulated. And so that process approval is not happening. So that's interesting. Uh, Drew will talk about something that I just learned about last week, um, about how it's, it's affecting his banks. Um, especially, um, I believe in Mississippi, you'll have to correct me, Drew, but these ethereal wetlands, um, are now not needed or being generate credits. So other parts of the country are really, really, uh, experiencing, uh, hardship because of this. And Drew, please elaborate on what you're going through right now. Yes. Thank you, Victoria. Yeah, we, we have a site that, um, obviously under the previous uh, WOTUS rules, ephemerals were jurisdictional, so it was permitted that way. And the ephemeral reaches did require some enhancement activities. Uh, we performed those activities. And then after the WOTUS change last year, we were informed that we could no longer uh, request any credit releases uh, that, that relied on those ephemeral reaches. So, you know, the, the problem in that lies with a lot of the money has been spent up front to to generate those credits and then we're losing that on the back end uh i will say you know that's something we're still dealing with and currently dealing with kind of an approach that we're taking with it though in, in a different state is we are still viewing ephemerals even though they're not jurisdictional and not credit generating we're still including them in our conservation easement uh, you know, that, that's an overall watershed protection approach. So it, it's good for the environment. And if, if rules swing back and forth, like they have the potential to do as administrations continue to change, you know, maybe we have the potential there 
when that does swing the other way that we can gain some credits on those ephemeral reaches again. How about you, Nicole? That's a really good question. So in Iowa, I haven't seen a difference. Um, stream other than our core district saying that they're no longer going to approve um, mitigation banks that involve ephemeral streams. So that's that's basically the only change that I've seen. I actually didn't see a significant change with um, the WOTUS rule under Obama either. So um, things are just a little bit different here in the Midwest. But I mean, there are other core districts around us that are different. For example, St. Paul is a lot stricter than Rock Island, it seems like, um, and what they're willing to regulate. They also have a lot more wetlands in Minnesota than we do in Iowa. So it makes a little bit more sense and higher quality fens and such. So anyway, I think it just really depends on the, the resources that you have in your state and, and how well protected they are from a state level. Um, and then the core district sort of steps in and fills that gap if needed or um, if they feel that it's required, but for Iowa, I haven't really seen a difference. Mike, did you have something else to, to add before we move on to the next question? Yeah, uh, just to, to maybe close that uh, idea out, uh, you know, WOTUS is, a, is an issue that was uh, sort of born by the courts, has lived in the courts, and I believe will ultimately uh, probably uh, die with the courts. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands, but, but ultimately this is an issue that uh, is going to be decided by the courts, I believe. So for, for the next question, um, I'm gonna be directing it uh, back to you, Mike, and then Nicole and, and Tara. Um, we've, we've heard that, you know, we kind of briefly touched on there's several different types of, of mitigation within that kind of broad umbrella of compensatory mitigation. Uh, but but mitigation banking is considered the, that kind of gold standard uh, from, from an environmental standpoint. So the question would be, while there are several forms of mitigation, why is mitigation banking that kind of priority of the core program? And, and what makes it better than the other forms of mitigation, such as the PRM or, or in LUFIs? So to kick us off, Mike. Sure, I think, I think that the, the, the fact that there are these uh, 12 elements uh, within the uh, mitigation rule that, you know, theoretically all forms of mitigation are supposed to be following, but, but which are religiously followed for banks. These 12 elements are, are part of that, which include those financial assurances I mentioned, um, easements, uh, stewardship uh, in perpetuity, those, those kinds of things. That's um, when we're talking about impacts to the public resources and those impacts are being um, uh, undertaken by, for example, uh, industry, right? A developer or something like that, right? Uh, it's always seemed a bit strange to me that somehow uh, we had um, uh, NGOs and non, uh, nonprofits or governments involved in somehow providing that offset or mitigation. To my way of thinking, this is a place where the impacts are being created by industry and those offsets should be uh, created by industry. If we want to uh, overcome some of this issue of environmental impacts, we really do need to engage private industry with a carrot, um, uh, not just consistently with a stick. Thank you, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Nicole, from your kind of position having worked for the core, could you uh, add anything? to this question? Yeah, I think so. So 
um, from a regulatory standpoint, managing one large area and overseeing that is so much easier than getting a hundred monitoring reports annually for small pocket wetlands that were created under PRM. So from a regulatory standpoint, heck yeah, mitigation bangs all the way, number one. Um, it just really is, a, you know, makes documentation easier. Um, they're all in one location. So if site visits are ever needed, you know, core personnel, can, they just have to go to one site, maybe spend a whole day instead of spending a whole week going to 100 different sites. So um, I just really think for from a regulatory standpoint, mitigation banks make way more sense than PRM. Um, that being said, from a, a private standpoint, I am a consultant. Um, I've been with Snyder for nine years now, and I've, I've seen both sides of it. But from a consulting standpoint, mitigation banks save so much time and money. I mean, depending on the amount, obviously, of impacts that you have, um, it, it's, it's just way more beneficial to spend your time and your energy focusing on your project instead of having to worry about mitigation. Now, mitigation banks aren't always available in, in service areas, so PRM is still required um, occasionally in some of our projects. So I'm still on the hunt occasionally for a property where we can mitigate and, and improve it in some capacity. But the problem is, is with PRM, you're forcing yourself to manipulate a site just because it's required under a permit, not necessarily beneficial to the watershed or it makes sense, but hey, I'm obligated under this permit to go do this. So here's what I'm proposing, may not make sense, but you're requiring me to do it. So here's what I'm gonna throw at you because I have limited time, money and, and the resource available to me. Um, it, it's not always the case, but but sometimes you just, you can't manipulate a site to the quality that it should be. Um, you know, whether you're talking about vegetation or hydrology management, um, just because they just want to satisfy your permit. And if they have to do the bare bones minimum to do that, then, then that's, what's going to be required. It's not always the case. Uh, a lot of County conservations, um, complete their own management in Iowa and they turn out great. So I just think, you know, mitigation banks are a win-win from both sides, as long as, for one, you've done your due diligence if you're in the private side and, and you've gone through your alternatives analysis and your LEDPA and you're actually in, only impacting as much as you need to. As long as it's reasonable, it, if your project's reasonable, mitigation will be reasonable. If you're going to fill in the Des Moines River, you're going to have some really high mitigation costs and you should be prepared for that. So um, again, it just really depends on the, the type and size of your project, but I definitely think mitigation banks are a win-win for both sides. Thanks, Nicole. Tara, do you have anything uh, that you could add to this uh, question? Yeah, um, two of the primary from the regulatory and policy side, two of the primary things about mitigation banks are one that mitigation banks are always selling advanced or created credits, not advanced credits or not promises. Uh, a mitigation bank doesn't get a first credit release until the site is secured and protected with a conservation easement. A mitigation plan and design has been approved by full interagency review team. Financial assurances are in place and that financial assurances, um, you have your easement holder endowment 
which is a negotiation generally between the banker and the easement holder. And then you have your long-term management funding, at least the amount agreed on. But also the cost to implement the project has to have a, a bond or other financial assurances, a letter of credit. So the whole process of implementing the bank is protected by financial assurances. And then you get a credit. So by the time the first credit is sold, all of those things have been done. The second batch of credits doesn't come till you build the site. So you're always selling credits for things done. The second biggest thing from the permittee side, from the entity seeking the permit to fill, is that they can wash their hands of the liability. The sale of a permit credit is a transfer of liability from the permittee to the mitigation banker. And in general, I think that's a huge transition that's happened over the past 15 years is initially uh, mitigation banks were on, sponsored and developed by the landowner. In many cases, they still are, but there's just a wealth of practice behind us. And some folks like me who only own a house, sort of, <laughs> in a, you know, an urban area, um, can, but my profession is mitigation banking. So that's been a big change. But I think that the sale of credits for established activities and the transfer of liability are the two main, two of the biggest reasons to buy credits. Right, thank you, Tara. So kind of what we, Daniel and I were thinking of piggyback off the back of that and Nicole started to talk about a little bit because we're talking a lot about business end of thing, but but to look at things from an environmental or ecosystem or the ecological perspective, how how does this compensatory or even voluntary mitigation, how is this more environmentally superior um, versus, you know, for, for offsetting these uh, impacts to the environment? So love to hear from Susan Marie and uh, Mike and also uh, Tara on this one, but Mike, why don't we start with you? So uh, part of the, the, the birth of, of banking really and the final rule, the 2008 mitigation rule uh, was a result of, the, of, a, of a big study. And what that study found was that some of this uh, permittee responsible mitigation was failing uh, and for a long time and, and frankly, pretty miserably. And, even where the projects were actually getting to ground, where there, there was active restoration going to ground for mitigation, projects were, were small and they were spread out, right? So one of the big advantages uh, that mitigation banking presented was you could begin to do things, as I said in my presentation earlier, a bit at a watershed scale. That, um, that ability to start to put projects over hundreds or thousands of acres and to manage those projects then over that uh, a long period of time, I think is, is one of the cornerstones really of the superiority from a ecological standpoint of the, of the strategy for, uh, uh, for banking. Great, thanks Mike. Susan Marie, how about, how about from your side, from feds and policy? Well, I agree that um, with most of what other people have said, um, that because you have someone actually watching uh, the compensatory mitigation, monitoring it and, and is accountable for a large amount of it as opposed to individual little pockets, it's just, it's more efficient and it's more effective. 
And um, you mentioned even voluntary restoration. One of the reasons that NOAA supported the restoration bank in the West Coast that was for NERDA impacts is because the monitoring that you get in a mitigation bank is better than the monitoring that can be required under a non-banking um, NERDA process. So, so that monitoring and accountability is pretty big. The challenge, um, at least from my perspective and NOAA's perspective, is that these things seem to work best in inland areas. There are not a lot of banks for seagrass. There are not a lot of banks for coral, for salt marshes, or for even mudflats or unvegetated um, aquatic habitats, like nearshore habitat. And so, um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, a lot of it has to do with market demand. A lot of it has to do with the fact that submerged lands are state-owned and not private. Um, so I think the challenge for the future, given all the benefits of um, mitigation banking and providing compensation in a wide range of, um, of programs, not just the Clean Water Act, is figuring out how to make that work in, in coastal areas. Great. Thank you, Susan Marie. And Tara, do you want to add anything to that from your experience as well? Sure. And I think that, you know, what Michael said and what Susan Marie was largely saying, what we've a lot of us said today is it's scale. You know, it's the size that we're able to do. Um, I've been fortunate to work with Warehouser here in South Carolina, and we just um, had our first year monitoring site visit for 2,500 acres of restored wetland. And just walking out there and, you know, it was timber. It was pine trees just over a year ago. And now the primary ground cover is junkus and other things like that. It's at the headwaters of the Ashley River outside of Charleston. I mean, that's that's cool. And um, mitigation banking allows you to work at that scale. One of the criticisms of mitigation banking over the years has been the migration of mitigation sites to undeveloped areas and away from the impact. And I would say that's where these other markets can come in. Water quality can, trading can happen on a much larger scale in a BMP or over surface land. Um, carbon can happen in, ur in urban areas. So there are other programs accounting for the value of the natural resources that can fill in that urban corridor. Great, thank you. So the next question is kind of in respect to time. So again, thank you for all those of you who are sticking it out with us here because we still have some juicy stuff coming in. Um, so, you know, the next question is really in respect to, okay, I've, I've created a mitigation bank. How much time am I spending on it? How long does it take to, sell off those credits, whether it's all an entire bank or portions of those credits. And so um, I wanted to, to address this to, uh, to Victoria and to Kay and to Drew. And since we haven't heard from Kay yet here in this discussion, maybe we'll start off with you and then we'll jump over to Victoria. Really, I think that that answer is dependent on where the mitigation bank is. It's where the demand is um, and how big, as Tara was just mentioning, how big that bank has been built. Um, you know, I have seen banks with very large credit supply that's taken 20 plus years and they're still not sold out of credits. I think somebody had asked earlier, you know, if 10 years was the limit and then what happens after that 10 years? There isn't a time limit as far as how long a bank can sell credits, it sells it till they sell out or they just get tired and want to um, just 
say, you know what, we've sold all the credits we want to sell and we're ready to, to hand it over to long-term management. So again, it's really geographically based um, and it's really based on the market. Great. Victoria? Yes. Absolutely agree with Kay. Uh, to add a little bit more historical data uh, absorption and to understand, you know, there's other mitigation things in the service area to really pricing, you know, everything about it. They're, they're um, of course, you know, of course, their credit absorption, how many credits they have pending to be released. All these factors are so important to understand how long a mitigation bank is estimated to be able to sell credits. And um, you, you could, you know, figure out that there might be two credits sold one year and 50 credits is sold the next year. Uh, it's sometimes not predictable. But what I would say is for a 10-year sellout, and of course, it all depends how many credits are available to sell, about 800 acres would probably be the estimated amount of acres that would protect, uh, generate about 10-year sellout, of course, depending on the absorption and the demand. Hey, how about you? What are you seeing, Drew? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much just an echo of what Kay and Victoria said. I mean, I think they pretty much nailed it as that. I mean, that's the million dollar question is like, you know, because from a financial standpoint, you know, every year after that, you know, the 10 year mark or whenever you uh, hope to be uh, moved on to the next project, I mean, that's costing you money as a banker, you know, to continue to operate that bank and not selling credit. So obviously the the market plays a big role in that, you know, what's happening and, and uh, what's going on and future impacts. So uh, really nothing more to add other than that. Great. Thank you all. And uh, we're going to cap off with one more question here. I think that Daniel's going to pop in. Yeah. So this, this question is, is going to be for, for Susan, Marie, uh, Tara, and Kay. What part ideally should governments uh, appropriately play in, in wetland mitigation and, and any other of these mitigation efforts? So Susan Marie, could you kick us off with that one? <laughs> Way to put me on the spot to speak for all of the federal government, um, which I am not <laughs> doing. Um, but from my own perspective as someone who has worked in policy for a very long time, um, the purpose of policy is to create a framework that gets you to um, the desired outcome. So I would say that the proper role for the federal government is to provide that framework so that um, everybody knows what the rules are um, and taking into account that, um, as Tara mentioned, all of the trust resources agencies have our own mandates. I mean, we, we have to protect restore and manage these resources for the American people. And um, so that has to be, so whatever framework is established to, um, to allow compensatory mitigation to go forward as efficiently and as effectively as possible still has to allow us to meet our mandates. Thank, thank you for, for sharing your thoughts there. Uh, Tara, anything um, from your end? Oh, no, that's absolutely right. Is you know these agencies, state, local, and federal, have their mandates and their rules and their regulations they have to follow. A really interesting question is: Should the agencies have a say in whether or not specific credits are bought for an impact 
you know, are all credits created equal? If I've got credits for sale in a watershed that are created under a watershed approach and have jumped through all the hoops and all the time, um, can a regulator say, no, we don't want to use those credits for this permit? I think that's a, a more interesting, I mean, a more of a debatable question. I don't think there's much debate as to whether or not the regulators have a say over aquatic resources. Thank you. Kay, from your, from your position, uh, any, anything more to add? Well, I just am going to add it from a little bit different perspective as far as government. Um, I, I say that there's opportunity for partnership with mitigation banks and um, government. In fact, I represent a bank in Florida um, where we have a private sponsor has partnered with a city um, to, and we've developed a mitigation bank um, on, on some of their property. And it's actually gone very well. I think it's actually something that should be explored more. That's, you know, obviously on the regulatory piece of it, government obviously is, plays a huge piece. Um, but also I do think that there's partnership efforts that could be explored more with government, local governments. So there was one question, Daniel, that kept popping back up, um, just asking if credits can be purchased for deferred use. So I think if anybody wants just to grab that and Kay looks like she's excited about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this kind of happens regularly. We have um, DOTs and airports that actually um, just do bulk purchases. They, they do like a five, 10 year plans, know what their needs are. Um, and so they go, they go ahead and do bulk purchases um, Depending on you know the DOT, they may do um, intent to bids for these things. But so the quick answer is absolutely yes, uh, and they are just used for a number of projects um, over the years to come. So, well, anyone else want to add to that before we wrap up? Um, I'll say you know he mentioned FDOT and airports sometimes purchasing in bulk. You know. 50 sand skiing credits, 120, just because they anticipated and they're like, we don't know if they're going to be around in five years. Let's be smart about this. But on the other side of the coin, it's sometimes very difficult, especially with private development, to encourage them to buy credits before they're needed because they want to wait until they have final approval. And is this going to be approved or not? And how many credits am I actually going to need? I don't want to buy 70 and I'm going to need 20. So it's easier said than done. But like Kay said, it's going to happen. Thank you for listening to the EcoBot podcast. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about how EcoBot is helping to transform the industry and see what we can do to help your company, you can find us at www.ecobotapp.com. I am Jeremy Shavey, and I'll see you next time on the EcoBot podcast.